Welcome to episode 37 of That Classical Podcast. This time, the romantic period. Hello. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. My name's Kelly Harlock. And you're listening to episode 37 of That Classical Podcast. (laughs) Welcome to all of you. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about romantic music with a capital R. Chris, what the hell does that mean? So we're not talking sexy, sexy love time music. Sadly, no. Sadly, no. Although I guess there is some of that in there. Could be. It's not crazy. It's up to you. Mm. But why romantic? Why are we calling it romantic? Mm. Well, I'll tell you. Thanks. So it's based on medieval romance stories, basically. So we're talking Mm. legendary tales about King Arthur and Charlemagne and other people like that. Yeah. Good stuff. Love it. Uh, So it connotes something sort of very distant and legendary and fantastical, basically removed from the humdrum or the everyday nice. or the actual real world and that's why that's why we call it romantic mm. so in terms of dates we're talking around early 1800s maybe like 1815 1820 all the way through to the beginning of the 20th century up to when would you say like 1920 i read that it was 1920 like 1920 is super late like the that's, last year your yeah. potatoes are planted <laughs> by then no more after that but yeah usually sort of as with all artistic movements the beginning and the ends are a little bit fuzzy washy Wishy-washy. So uh, lots of people say that Beethoven, our pal Beethoven, mm. is the first romantic composer. <laughs> that he was sort of like crossover between classical and romantic. So a little bit wavy. Don't yeah. really know exactly where to fit him in. Right. And today we will indeed be discussing some wishy-washy romantic composers as well as the proper ones <laughs> and by, ensconced in there. By wishy-washy, you mean the overlap with right, other yeah, time sorry, periods. Sorry. Than, yeah, got yeah, it. No. So, romanticism is about energy, it's about passion, it's about a focus on individual expression, on lots of focus on melody and the emotion behind it. So lots of composers felt too constrained, basically, by the classical period, where everything was about being beautiful and symmetrical. Maths. Balanced. Trigonometry in music. (laughs) Sure, yeah. And so they start to introduce new musical forms. So we're talking tone poems, we're talking symphonic poems, your fave, Kelly. I love them. Uh, We're talking new instruments in the orchestral repertoire, Bass clarinets, piccolos, loads of percussion. So if you think of like uh, Tchaikovsky, uh, Nutcracker, lots of tinkly Tinkly. glockenspiels. Yeah, got it. Don't get much tinkly glockenspiel in Haydn, do you? That's a shame. So lastly, music was really, really important in Romanticism. So it's not just a a musical movement. It's also present in visual art. So the famous uh, piece of art that sort of symbolises the romantic period is uh, Wanderer looking out over a sea of fog. Oh, I love that picture. (laughs) Oh, God. Right, well, Kelly knows it. If you, dear listener, don't know it, so it's a a back shot of a guy standing on some rocks. He's looking fancy. Does he have a cane? I think he has a cane. He has a cane. And he's looking out on top of a mountain, basically over loads and loads of fog, and it's like, ooh, man, nature, alone, individuality. On an adventure, you know, he's about to jump off the cliff. I don't know, is he? he? Who knows? Who Uh, knows? Love it. That's romanticism in visual arts. You've also got writers like Goethe, people like that. But music was especially important to this time period and to this whole movement, basically because it's free from the sort of absolute concrete meaning of words Mm. and means that music can sort of express thoughts and feelings and emotions that Mm. words simply can't. How lovely is that? Very, I would say. (laughs) So who are you going to start with today then? 
Well, I was thinking about all of these things and all of the stuff that romanticism means, yeah. and I thought I'd pick a composer that sort of lands slap bang in the middle of romanticism. Bang. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, one that is definitely not classical, definitely not 20th century, right. but super romantic. Mm. And that is Robert Schumann. Schumann, we haven't really ever talked about Schumann. Weirdly, have we? we've never talked. We've mentioned Clara Schumann, who yeah, was Robert's did, wife, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but we've never really talked that much about Robert Schumann. Is it because we think we don't like Robert Schumann? Is that why? I think we don't like Franz Schubert <laughs> that much. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> but we do like Schumann. We've tarred him with the same brush in our minds. The t- same we? shoe brush. Exactly. Yes. No. Schumann is great. I think we should enjoy him very much. <laughs> so the piece I'm going to talk about is his piano concerto, which he wrote in 1845. So that's yeah, time-wise, pretty much that slap is bang. Slap bang. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. so slap bang in right. romanticism. So this piano concerto is his only piano concerto that he ever wrote. He wrote a whole bunch of other ones, but all were unfinished. He was never really happy with them. And so this piece started life as a fantasy for piano. So a fantasy is... It's, it comes up regularly throughout various time periods, but is largely viewed as like a romantic form of music. So it's same with like Fantasy on a Theme of Thomas Tallis by Vaughan Williams. It's basically a sort of like quarter of an hour-ish mm-hmm. musical idea, not quite big enough to be a symphony, not quite big enough to be a concerto, but big enough that it requires a bit of time with an orchestra. Got it. However, publishers were like, eh, they were never that interested in it. And so he eventually finished it into a whole piano concerto in 1845. And it's a really beautiful piece. And I think we should listen to it before we we talk any more about it. Let's do it. What did you think of that? I am. I think I'm slightly underwhelmed. What? Yeah. I, oh no. I just thought it was all right. You know, it was all right. I wouldn't write home about it. I wouldn't write a postcard. Oh, I would. I'd really? be like, dear mother, I listened to this piano concerto. It was good. Best I wishes, Christoph. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, maybe you need to listen to more of it to enjoy it. Mm. So that bit we heard right at the end of the excerpt there, the... So those notes, for those of you without perfect pitch, saying as if if I've got perfect pitch. (laughs) Anyway, those notes are C, B, A, A. Right. But in you know how in German B is H? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's C, H, A, A, which... (laughs) The Italian version of Clara is Chiara, so C H I A R A. Clara. I think that is stretching it, isn't it? It's not. It's no, (laughs) no. Is that what he said? Yeah, yeah, no, that genuinely is what it is. What a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Because, so Clara Schumann was a outstanding pianist Mm. and she was the one who actually performed this the first time yeah and so robert basically wrote this sort of as a love letter to clara so that's her name written in the music which i think is really sweet very sweet Uh, one might say 
It's romantic. <laughs> One oh, might sweet. say that yeah. if they were incredibly corny. Yeah. Uh, I think it works really nicely as an example of, yeah, of how romantic music doesn't have to be sort of overblown or bombastic. Mm. It can... So it can just be, a, like, as I said, a love letter in the way that lots of pieces from the classical or the Baroque period, they were never that personal. They were never that individual. Right. Uh, sure, there were, like, dedications of pieces and composers would put their own for life release. and work into. Yeah, for release. nice. Um, would put their own love for other people into their music. But I don't know, this was something that was fairly new to the Romantic period of it being sort of so personal and so individual. And I don't know, I just think it's sweet. Right, uh, we're going to talk about Puccini <gasps> next, all right? Again, someone I don't think we've ever actually featured we, No, before. we haven't featured him, which seems a bit Weird. silly, because he was, I mean, he has written some of the most famous operas basically ever. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, he's written, you might have heard of La Boheme. I have. Tosca. I have. Madame Butterfly. I've heard of that too. Miss Saigon, as it I've... became <laughs> in the musical world. What a banger. Um, but he's actually considered one of the greatest Italian opera composers after Verdi, you mm. know, if not the greatest. So he's sure. a famous bloke. Um, and even even though I mean, his he was around in the really very late Romantic um, era, but his musical style is is quite traditionally romantic, I would say, and okay. and we'll hear that in in just a moment. So a little bit of a background check: was he Italian? <laughs> Affirmative. Did he write anything other than opera? Yeah. Is it crap? <laughs> uh, did he have a fantastic moustache? Yes, he did. And that's that. Cool. So, I think what we're learning with loads of these composers, it's like, oh, wow, they're really famous for one thing. Did they write anything else? Yes, sure. Is it any good? No. They're famous for this one thing. <laughs> Do you know, I, no, I did. I genuinely was really intrigued as to whether he'd written other things. Yeah. And to be fair, it was minimal, like what he wrote that was right. instrumental. It was just sort of all right. It was alright, it's not gonna okay, right, change your okay. life. But anyway, right. anyway, today we're gonna talk about Turando, okay? Spelt Turandot, but apparently you're meant to pronounce it without the T. Discuss. That's what the internet says. Alright. I don't you're, 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 I've, I've heard both. I've I heard think. both too. Today I'm gonna to say Turando and just send me hate mail <laughs> if it's wrong. Alright. So Puccini started writing this in 1920. So I wasn't joking wow. about it really being on the very cusp of the Romantic era. Yeah. Um, really late. Uh, and it was inspired by a Persian collection of stories called A Thousand and One Days, which <gasps> is the sister story of A Thousand and One Nights. Like Shahrazad, right? Me? Yeah. I had no idea that even existed. A sister story. Who knew what that is? Who knew? Until this moment. And so it's set in China actually. All right. Uh, so I'm going to tell you the story because I like to do that when we have operas on here. Uh, so you, picture the scene. The Imperial Palace in Beijing, right? You there? Princess Turando slash Turandot can only marry a suitor of A, royal blood. Classic. B, who can answer three riddles. And if they answer <laughs> any of the riddles wrong... They simply get murdered, right? Which cool. immediately that seems like a great day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever seen Holy Grail, Monty Python? <laughs> yeah. Immediate reminder of the guy on the bridge that's like, answer oh. these questions three. What, what is, is your, your name? name? <laughs> what is your quest? What is your favourite colour? What a great film. Gonna put that on Twitter. Um anyway, the point is they don't ask those questions in this opera. <laughs> but um there's a dude, what happens is it starts. There's a dude in the crowd, big crowd in yeah. China, in Beijing. He's called Calaf. Of course. And uh, 
He sees his dad, who's a king, by the way, in sure. the crowd, and he's like, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. You're alive. Bang, tidy. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Turando steps kind of out onto a balcony, uh, and Calaf is like, oh, she is peng. I fancy her loads. <laughs> All right. Bring on those riddles. I'll show you what I got. Okay. Turando is like, oh, I hate men. <laughs> Everyone mansplains everything to me. And I'm just, I hate them. They're horrible. And my ancestors hated them too. Um, I'm going to pull you up on that, Turando. <laughs> The very fact that they are ancestors <laughs> means that at least at one time they probably didn't hate men. Stop mansplaining it to me, all right? <laughs> um, so Calaf actually, so he goes into the valleys and um, he answers all their riddles. He's like, bish, bash, bosh, wow. I know everything. And so then Turindo kind of turns to her dad and she's like, dad, look, I get that he's answered these three riddles, but I'm not sure that's like a great basis for marriage. And I don't really want to marry him, like, if I'm honest. <laughs> if I'm honest about it, I just don't want to. Fair. And Calaf is like, okay, I hear you. How about this? If you can guess my name before sunrise, you can literally kill me. You can just, you could just chop my head right off. Is this not very similar to Rumpelstiltskin? What is Rumpelstiltskin? What Rumpelstiltskin? is the story of Rumpelstiltskin? <laughs> it's the same thing again. He's is like, really? you have to guess my name before right, okay, the sun rises. There we go. It's based on this then. Well, but yeah, based <laughs> on the maybe a thousand one days. So yeah, so Torindo's like, fair play, mate. Uh, sends her cronies out into the night trying to find his name. And Calaf waits in the garden till the morning on the patio next to the barbecue. <laughs> and then uh, some ridiculous things happen, right? I'm not going to tell you what they are. I'm not going to ruin the whole plot for you. All right, but sure. it's essentially, eventually, essentially and eventually, Calaf and Turindo kiss. Turindo is like, yeah, you know what? I do actually fancy you. <laughs> uh, and, and Calaf is like, uh, all right, my name's Calaf. Kill me if you want. And then, and, and, and then she's like, ah, oh, mm, everyone gather round. I've found out his name. And Calf's like, oh, no. And then she goes, his name is Love. And that's, <laughs> that's the end. That's the end. So oh, they, opera, they, you've they, done it again. They all live happily just... ever after, apart from the people who've been murdered along the way, <laughs> who've just been magically forgotten about, because I feel like that's what happens in, in most <laughs> operas. That's all right. So all that said... Going back, when he saw his dad, the king, in the crowd earlier, what did that have to do with anything? So it just, I think it was um, confirming that he was a royal. Oh, so it's all right. So, so he he's could okay. do right. the riddles. Other than that, not sure. Discuss. But no, so look, Turindo. The most famous piece from Turindo is Nessun Dorma. <gasps> oh, yes. The classic. Love it. Um, which you may have heard before. Maybe you haven't, but... It's sort of been everywhere, especially since the 1990s, for reasons I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> um, and it literally means none shall sleep. And you know when I mentioned that um, Calaf was in the garden... Um, next to the barbecue. You know, next to the barbecue. That's when he sings it. So Turindo has just sent out her, her people into the night to find his name. And it's the night. Yeah. And so he's in the garden saying, like, no one's going to sleep tonight, not even you, princess. Blah, blah, blah. You'll never guess my name. I'm going to kiss you and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up, sunrise. Victory is mine! Uh, it literally ends with him saying, victory, victory, victory. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. That's why, like, you know, the end of that piece, if you know it already, is like, Vincella! Like, he's just screaming it. So, take it away, Pav.
we don't always like react that much to the music, but uh, listeners, we were both we basically like got up and were sort of the equivalent. Can't even describe it. Like the classical equivalent of doing an air guitar. I feel is what we just. <laughs> oh, we are oh, not cool. Oh my gosh, such nerds. Pavarotti, and we also said about eight times during that to each other, Pavarotti just had the most incredible voice. I know. So warm (laughs) and expressive. It feels like a really obvious thing to say. I mean, to be fair, on on the podcast, we actually don't talk about performers that much. We we tend to talk about composers much more. But you know what? Controversial opinion. Pavarotti was quite good at singing. Crazy times. <laughs> oh my God, that reminds me actually. Puccini. <laughs> this is great quote. That was just like, writing opera is quite hard. <laughs> is what he said. And it's true. Clearly it is. Uh, but no, so obviously we played you the final 30 seconds of that piece, the Vincero, which is a great impression from me, when he's like, gonna smooch you good, gonna be victorious. Gonna do a big old smooch. Gonna do a big old smooch on you. Um, and maybe you recognise it. Do you recognise it? Uh, it's been used in loads of stuff, actually, loads of films and stuff in the last 20 years. But it actually really got famous after 1990 mm. because the BBC used it in their cover. I think it was the intro to their coverage of the World Cup. Yeah. Uh, which is, we, we actually just watched the video of it. Really weird. <laughs> the <laughs> so intro. It was, it was in <laughs> Italy. It was in Italy that year. So they're yeah. like, Italian singer, Italian yeah, music. Very strange. Um, but no, so that's when it, it, and actually I think they used like a 1970s recording. Oh, really? In the 1990 thing. But it just became really just like synonymous with football generally. And footy, I think footy, he then footy. sang at the final or something like that. Um, and did you say there's a podcast called Ness and Norma about football? I think so, yeah. We've never listened to just it. Just giving but... them a plug. Never listened yeah. to it. <laughs> but there you go. Um, so uh, there it is. And that was Puccini's take on, on, I think, the more traditional operas that had come before him mm. in the proper romantic era as well. This episode of That Classical Podcast is brought to you by Encoda. That's N-K-O-D-A. It's Encoda! Encoda is a sheet music subscription app that we absolutely love. There are 110,000 titles available across Encoda, which means over 30 million pages of music! Uh, It's got absolutely everything from musicals to pop to every imaginable classical piece. You can go crazy. Encoder is for everyone. So whether you're a professional musician or a total beginner, you can share music instantly and annotate your own scores directly within the app. And as if all that weren't enough, that classical podcast listeners can get a free three-month trial to this amazing service. Just go to www.encoder.com forward slash that classical to sign up now. That's www.nkoda.com forward slash that classical for your free three-month trial. Next up, I've got a piece that, similar to Ness and Dorma, is very, 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 very well known. Oh, okay. But I've only recently got really into it myself, and ah, now I'm a bit obsessed. Interesting. So, the piece I'm going to talk about is Also Sprach Zarathustra. Great accent. Thanks, mate. Uh, or Thus Spake Zarathustra. And it's by uh, Richard Strauss, uh, in, written in 1896. So again, fairly late romantic, yeah. but still has lots of your classic hallmarks of nice. romanticism. Mm. Uh, don't confuse 
Richard Strauss with Johann Strauss. Johann Strauss's Blue Danube Waltz. Right. Da, 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 All da. the younger. Bam, bam. There, why are there so many Strausses? Too many. What's going on? I don't know. Andrew Strauss, he's an England cricket player. So this piece, probably most famous now from the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. So you probably already know which piece I'm talking about. The, I'm not don't don't it. sing it. Don't leave sing it. it. I'll, leave it. Yeah. I'll leave it. But we're going to listen to the opening movement of it, uh, which is called Sunrise. Now, the piece itself, the whole thing is a, a tone poem, which lasts maybe sort of a quarter of an hour. Uh, it was inspired by a, a book by Friedrich Nietzsche. So he wrote this philosophical novel, also called... Also sprach Zarathustra. You just wanted to say it again, didn't you? I just as many it times as I can fancy. say Zarathustra. <laughs> right. So uh, Strauss's piece is not uh, programmatic, so it's not directly based on the book, but it's sort of it's thematically linked to it and is in the same world, the same cinematic universe, nice. shall we say. Mm. And the individual movements or the individual parts of the, the piece of music are named after the chapters of the book. So first chapter is Sunrise. First bit of the piece is called Sunrise. Nailed it. Now, the way he represents Sunrise is this main fanfare, the really, really famous fanfare, which just goes on a, a root, a fifth, and an octave, CGC, if you're interested. A root, a fifth, and an octave, CGC. Explain. So, if we're in the key of C, which, more on that later, oh, oh uh, but if we are in the, the key of C, then we say C is the root note, uh, fifth is one, two, three, four, five on the scale, mm -hmm. which makes it G. Then an octave is the same note, but higher, if that makes sense. How do you explain an octave? Well, an octave is eight notes, isn't it? It's eight notes. And so you go C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C again is up there. There we go. That's how to explain it. Sorry, I shouted that. Go on. <laughs> so that's the main fanfare. Root, fifth, octave. It's elemental. It's strong. It represents nature. However... What I didn't realise until I heard this live, and I actually heard it performed live for the first time last week, uh, before you hear that fanfare, there's this insane low rumbling that happens yeah. before. no, I know. Yeah. I had no idea. So there's like an organ as well as basses. So yeah. the note that he gets to play, the lowest note you can usually play on a double bass is an E. Yeah. But Strauss was like, mm, no, no, let's please go lower than that. So to play it, you have to get like an extra attachment onto your double bass to make it play an even lower note. What? I know. So it's phenomenal when you hear it live, just like mm. the lowest note an orchestra can Blah. possibly play. Yeah, like that. Exactly like <laughs> right. that. And then, oh, it's so good. Let's just listen to it. I mean, it's just incredible. Isn't I mean, it's it just absolutely epic. It's an overused word, but I think it's totally. Yeah, no, appropriate it's like case. properly. It's pan fantastic, fantastic uh, for space as well. It's just perfect. I don't know. All just yeah, love it. Uh, yeah. So this 
fanfare actually repeats quite a lot throughout the piece, or at least that same sort of shape, so root, fifth, octave. Right. And it's amazing how much melody he creates from just these three notes, which are the... So the mm. The beginning of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is a root and a fifth. If you think about it, like oh, yeah. twinkle, twinkle Twinkle, yeah. <laughs> and that's nothing. That's just like two of the most basic notes. And he creates loads and loads of melody. He even creates a fugue out of it at one point in the piece. Wow. Very, very clever. So you may remember earlier I was talking about the tonality of the piece and whether it was in C or not. And I said I'd come back to it. Well, here we are. Here we are again. So the very ending of the piece ends really ambiguously in terms of what key we're in. So... By this point, the upper instruments, so the woodwind, are in B major, and they end up playing this beautiful sort of pure B major chord over the top, and then the basses pluck a C, and then B major, then C. So these two notes are one note away from each other on the piano, so they do not fit together at all. And it almost sounds like comical with the flutes going like, and this is the key, and the bass is going, no, "No, this is the key, and this is the key, and this is the key. They're not getting on, basically. I see what you mean. And so going back to romanticism in general, mm. C major is what Strauss uses to represent nature. So it's sunrise, it's elemental, it's basic. Mm. There are no uh, sharps or flats. There's no accidentals in this key signature. Uh, it's elemental. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. B major is sort of one step away from that, and that represents humankind in this piece. So the ending wow. is left deliberately ambiguous as to what key we're in, in the same way that, you know, it's ambiguous how humans interact with nature, all that sort of now, stuff. I find that that's fantastic. And also, I love how, I think a lot of us, I'm speaking for myself, huge generalisation here, um, assume that piece is quite modern. But it's not. Was it 1895 it was written? 1896, yeah. Like, that is crazy. To me, it sounds so today. Sure, sure. But probably because we we associate it with sort of the modern stuff, like space and technology or whatever. But I just think that's wonderful that it's it's so old. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here's a question. Because when I remember, I think it was even the first time we even recorded an episode of this podcast... Um, and we didn't even know each other that well, which was hilarious <laughs> at the time. You mentioned that there was an orchestra in, I think it was the 70s or the 80s, was it? That <laughs> yeah, basically challenged itself to everyone swapped instruments So they're all around. professional musicians, yeah, yeah. but they all played an instrument right. they didn't know how to play. In Portsmouth, wasn't it? The Portsmouth I think, Orchestra, I think they called it like the Portsmouth Symphony Orchestra. Right, right, right. And so they've done a version <laughs> of this piece of Azor Sprach Zarathustra. And oh my god, it's incredible! It's the most out of tune, wonderful I thing ever. I cried laughing because we'll obviously put it on Twitter. And they're all trying. The best thing is they're all trying really <laughs> genuinely hard to play these instruments that they've learned for what, like a day or a week or something. <laughs> something like that. We're gonna put it on Twitter, guys. You'll absolutely love it. One, two, one, two, three. <laughs> Right, so before we crack on, we want to say a huge thanks to all of our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting us. We just massively appreciate your help. Chris, what can they find on our Patreon page? If you go to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash that classical podcast and become a patron of the show, you can get so much stuff. There's an exclusive episode that's only available to patrons. Mm. There's merch, there's blooper reels, there's behind the scenes stuff. There's so much stuff that you can get by supporting the show. But the most important thing you get, of course, is a shout-out on the show itself. So we'd like to say a massive thank you to... 
Yuan Penarin, Julia Avram, Kieran Dallison, Lizzie Wentz, Pedro Piver, Rachel Castagnoli, Sam Rowlands, Samarth Basin, Tiago Silveira, Janan Ganesh. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Now, romantic with a capital R does, of course, refer to that expressive kind of sweeping music we've we've heard, you know, quite Mm -hmm. a bit of today. But hold up, because look, (laughs) I think that definition of romanticism and the romantic era sort of wrongly excludes the composers doing something a little bit different. At okay. the time, all right. Go on. Uh, so when we decided to go on, so when we decided to do this episode, I I sort of said to myself, we've done the Rachmaninoffs, uh, the, the kind of Mendelssohn. He was romantic, wasn't he? We've done eight thousand Russian dudes. Okay, <laughs> so I thought let's have something a little less traditional and more kind of post-romantic, right? So I chose Scott. Joplin, nice, right? Who was, you know, around at the same time as Elgar, Mahler, Puccini. Like he was around. Okay, what what sort of dates are we talking? So he was born 1867, and he was active between sort of 1895 and 1917. Cool. Um, And actually, he's really the perfect example of a composer on the cusp of two eras of music, like we were talking about Mm. before with the wishy washiness, (laughs) like straddling the romantic and 20th century like a masterful cowboy. And like, I, I, I really find it fascinating because um, I think you can see all of that creative freedom, that newfound creative freedom that romanticism was all about. Yeah. I think that poured into the 20th century kind of era. Definitely, And yeah. really allowed composers to do something different and Absolutely, to like back yeah. themselves yeah. to make essentially just like a totally new sound. Definitely. Um, and yeah, so which is just brilliant. So Scott, Mr. Joplin, was from Texas in the States. And I think we should definitely do an episode on him at some point, like a full, and I'll give you the full rundown of his life then. (laughs) Because he was a really interesting guy. He was super ambitious and really talented from childhood. But as an African-American, he had to deal with so much horrific prejudice throughout his life. Just the most inspirational man. And what I found super interesting was that when he was kind of playing, like playing for money as a young young man, Mm. the only place he could find work were in churches and in brothels oh, <laughs> imagine right, just yeah, going yeah. from one to the other <laughs> like can you imagine the difference in audience you'd have i just found that so interesting and just bizarre but look he's a total legend and we know him or you might know him as well today as the king of ragtime <gasps> hello my baby hello, hello my honey baby. hello right. my ragtime girl there we go thank you for that <laughs> and ragtime like the actual definition of ragtime music uh, so it started around 1895, so quite late uh, yeah. in that century. And it blends the traditional kind of melodies and rhythms of African music with the traditional stuff of classical music as well, European Ooh, classical music. okay, yeah. Um, and its main trait is usually a syncopated or ragged rhythm. Uh, okay, like... Um, oh, I had no idea that's why it's called ragtime. Well, that's part... I mean, that's yeah. partly why it is. And I think partly the, the first guy who started writing ragtime, I think he was from a place with rag in the name. <laughs> right, okay. Genuinely. And so what I mean by that ragtime is like, I guess the only way I can put it, and we'll hear it in a minute, is it's like... Like that is the kind of... Anything that sounds like that, probably ragtime. 
And so Scott Joplin came along to us. To, it was already kind of happening by the time he really kind of started writing it. Yeah. And he took the form and just massively elevated it. Okay. And his one of the, his first really successful rags was the maple leaf rag, mm-hmm. which is the one that goes. I don't know that. I'm afraid. Okay. Well, it was a really famous rag. I'll take your word for it. And he basically brought this music into the Victorian parlor. Which okay. is just brilliant. Like everyone started playing it and everyone started having a dance to it. And it okay, was that's, this... that's really interesting. So like what you said, he sort of elevated it and formalised it. So this kind of music is, I mean, when you think of it, you're thinking like an old timey saloon and yeah, you've got exactly. the yeah, piano yeah. player a in brothel. the corner. Yeah, yeah. A brothel, exactly. if you will. Uh, so that's really interesting that he, I guess, sort of composed it rather than it being a sort of more improvisational yeah. background music style. Yeah, yeah, but actually yeah. writing it down and bringing it to to people who weren't frequent frequenters of brothels. Absolutely. And to be honest, it was composers like Scott Joplin who kind of got the world ready for jazz. Like, it's not okay, even... It's like it's, a jazz primer. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like, not even <laughs> understatement. He really, like, really helped pave the way for jazz to be sure. accepted. So, look, here is the first rag he wrote that really got famous. It's the maple leaf rag. Literally feel like I'm in an episode of the Looney Tunes, and it's excellent. <laughs> like some Laurel and Hardy show. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, no, it's brilliant, isn't it? And that's the thing. Imagine that in a Victorian living room. Like oh all God, the restraint that. is just gone. Do you know what I mean? Like so it's good. brilliant. I'd love to see someone playing some playing that specific piece of music to Queen Victoria. Right. Right. Amazing. Exactly. Can you imagine? So yeah, brilliant stuff. And and you know he. He wasn't only a pioneer in terms of bringing jazz into the world, but he was also just a trailblazer in classical music in that people like Debussy, Stravinsky, Lesis, like all these composers started writing ragtime. Really? Because of Scott Joplin. Oh my God. So he just, he was just an awesome guy. And I thought he definitely deserved a place yeah, in, sure. the romant, in the romanticism episode just because <laughs> yeah, it's something sure. so different. So do check out his other works. I mean, they're so much fun to play as well if you're a pianist. So give them a go. And yeah, there he is. That classical podcast. And that was our episode on romanticism. We hope you enjoyed it very much. Uh, If you want to keep up with our goings on and see what we're up to, uh, you can find (laughs) us on our website, www.thatclassicalpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram. We're at That Classical Insta. We're on Twitter, at That Classical. We're on Facebook. Just look for That Classical Podcast. Want to write us an email? Thatclassicalemail at gmail.com. Yes, indeed. And if you feel so inclined, uh, please do head on over over to iTunes and leave us a little cheeky five star review we'd absolutely love that um, and otherwise we'll see you next time guys bye see ya love is revenge you and me can write a bad romance